Welcome to Sunday Showcase. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. Sonic Speaks. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jack Ward for Sonic Speaks, and I'm here with a very special guest today. Audio drama fans may be familiar with his name as he was one of the sparks that lit the golden age of modern audio drama with a little radio drama called Star Wars, the original series. I am here with executive producer Richard Toskin. May I call you Rick or is it Jedi Master Toskin? Oh, Rick is fine. Rick is fine. <laughs> Not Jedi Master Toskin. Okay, <laughs> no, <enough>. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so thrilled that you uh, reached out, Rick. I'm so thrilled. Thank you so much for this. You may not know this, but when the new online modern audio drama movement mm. began in the aughts, most people were inspired to create movies for the mind based on three different projects they heard when they were younger in the 80s. Mm. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, CBC's Nightfall, <laughs> and NPR's Star Wars. So thank yeah. you so much for that right out of the gate. Yeah, I'm still hearing from people who uh, got turned on to audio uh, through that series. It's kind of amazing 40 some odd years later. I know, I know. So, but let's go back to the beginning. Were you always a fan of radio drama yourself? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm old enough that I grew up in uh, as a Manhattan brat listening to uh, the golden age of radio drama. Uh, my parents had one of these old wooden radios uh, that sat on like over in a radiator shield. And nice. I would uh, turn the volume as low as I could get it so I could hold my ear against the speaker uh, <laughs> and nobody else could hear the shows or so I thought. And so I would listen to, you know, I was, I don't know, four years old then or five years old and listening to Suspense and The Shadow and The Green Hornet and all those things. And That's amazing. So that was my introduction to uh, to this stuff. Um the and a connection I didn't know about until many years later, uh, once I became sort of a young adult, was that um, my my both my mother and my father had connections to uh, Orson Welles and John Houseman. Wow. Uh, and during the Mercury Theater days, uh, and uh, so. Uh, uh, during the time when Wells and Hausman did War of the Worlds, um, Wells was living in an apartment in a building that my grandfather apparently owned. And Wells would spend his trust fund before the year was out and would always get in trouble with his rent. And so my grandfather would pick up his rent. And so he ran a sort of mini version of the NEA for Wells and Hausman and the Mercury Theater in those days. So that's amazing. Wow. Anyway, and that of course came comes back many years later when I'm now in my, I don't know, I guess I was in my 30s uh at the University of Southern California. Um when the whole business of NPR and audio drama sort of got stirred up when Frank Mankiewicz became president of NPR. He was the son of Herman Mankiewicz, who produced, uh, 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 you know, the what was that thing that Wells played in? Um, 
with Rosebud. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, of course. And I just lost it now. That you <laughs> yes. Kind of uh, oh, Citizen Kane. Citizen yeah, Kane, okay. of course. Yes. Yeah. Course, and yeah. Uh, uh, Houseman was tangled up in that, but uh, uh, Herman Mankiewicz was the producer. Yes. And oh. so, um, uh, and um, uh, so Mankiewicz and Hausman, of course, therefore knew each other. Uh, and when uh, Frank Mankiewicz was appointed president of NPR in around, I don't know, 76, maybe 77, something like that. Um, he, NPR had almost no audience to speak of except for classical music. Uh, and Frank was a newsman. He wanted to you know, that was going to be NPR's thing it would do for the world. It would become an international news operation similar to the BBC. Right. And so he got this bizarre idea that the way to attract an audience for his news programs was through radio drama. Wow. Uh, and so anyway, what were that's... you doing at that time yourself? Like, what was your. OK, I was uh, uh, a uh, professor in the theater department and running the theater department oh, wow. uh, or managing the theater department for other people, depending on what year it was. Uh, <laughs> and on the side, I was playing around with radio drama. Cool. Uh, and um, so probably about three years before that, four years before that a local theater company, experimental theater company in LA did a play that was a history of the Vietnam War and of Vietnam in general. And wow. uh, I had in the meantime, almost from the time I got to LA in the 70s, I'd started working as a theater critic for KPFK, uh, the Pacifica station in uh, radical Pacifica station in Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, my one of my claims to fame was getting kicked out of the Mark Taper Forum for being too nasty about their productions. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I was young and foolish and radical and all that. So anyway, um, the um, uh, I went to see this show and I thought, you know, this would make an amazing radio drama. So I convinced KPFK that we should turn this into radio. Um, and so that was my sort of first as an adult, as opposed to a student, my first uh, major project involving radio. Um, and for whatever reason, KPFK didn't care for the production. I think it was too long uh, for their format. They aired it a couple of times, but it, you know that was sort of that. And then <clears throat> several years later, um, uh, I was reading a play by Ed Bullens, a great uh, black American playwright called The Sun Come Home. Uh, and uh, it occurred to me that it would be a really interesting radio drama that would only run about half an hour. Uh, so I got Ed to give me the rights to do it. Um, and uh, in talking with him about it, he, well, it isn't, as I remember mentioned in the script, the kid is a, uh, the son is a jazz musician. And so it occurred to me that, oh, I can, you know, use, uh, a jazz score recorded live as the the ambience and the music behind the show. So uh, we pulled together some really good black performers and we did this at a small studio in LA. And uh, so KP, uh, KUSC was the NPR station in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was sort of one of the five big guns of the NPR network. 
So they aired as Sun Come Home, um, uh, though they had some hesitations about some of it because it was pretty different from what Earplay was doing. Earplay was NPR's big radio project that had been almost going for 10 years by then, involving playwrights writing either plays directly for radio or taking existing plays and putting them on stage or for radio uh, with stage performers doing the performances. Um, and so anyway, uh, somehow as a result of the Sun Come Home thing, um, KUSC got me a grant from NPR to do a couple of higher level productions. Um, and uh, by that point, I had just started working with John Houseman, who I convinced to come in and be the artistic director of the theater program at USC. Wow. Um, so anyway, somehow John got tangled up in this because once I got, I don't know, I think I was given like 5,000 bucks or something, which was, you know, I don't know, nowadays, maybe 15 or 20,000. Yeah, I was um, going to say, nowadays, it'd probably be four times as much back then. Yeah, right. Probably, yeah. So anyway, we did um, uh, two things. Uh, I went to John and I said, okay, um, you know, I want to try something different with radio drama. Um, and uh, do you have some suggestions? I asked him who he would suggest as a director or a writer, director or a director. And he recommended this guy named Fletcher Markle, who'd been active at the tail end of the golden age mm -hmm. and was now doing television, stuff like that. So uh, I hired Fletcher. Uh, and we decided to do, uh, I was always a Raymond Chandler fan. And so we decided to do Red Wind, um, the show. Raymond Chandler short story uh, yep. about evil doings in Los Angeles in the midst of a Santa Ana wind. Right. Um, and, um, and then for the second thing, we decided to go toward science fiction. Uh, and we did a piece by Damon Knight called Stranger Station. Uh, Knight was the guy who developed the story that eventually became um, Twilight Zone, the, right. the Rod Serling thing that ran for a million years. Yeah. Um, so the um, uh, one of the things I discovered with uh, A Sun Come Home was that when we ran the when we had an excuse to run this jazz combo under the dialogue the show seemed to come to life more than it did when it was just spoken word and so um and there was some weird thing that happened where for some reason the uh the tape we made of the jazz group was like you know 15 seconds too short uh, and rather than bring <laughs> them back old in, school tape we just decided just yeah we just decided out, right? to fake so, it and it you know it was geez. a little weird but anyway so with the Houseman thing, Fletcher knew this guy who is a Foley guy in film uh, and longtime Foley guy to do all the sound effects. And so we were recording live um, and we uh, cast Richard Widmark as uh, Raymond Chandler uh, and Jack Crucian was the villain uh, who, and you know, these guys came out of radio before they went to Hollywood yeah, and sure. supporting cast was terrific. And they had tremendous amounts of film experience, which at the time I didn't realize was important, but they'd left behind their theater days. 
And so tell me, so I, I hate to interrupt you because I have no, no, a thousand different questions. Yeah. What the, so I want to hit the, this rate. What is the difference in your mind having solid uh, cinema or film experience compared to theater and how that applies to the radio drama art? Oh, okay. Um, why is it? Why was it so valued? I'm probably about to annoy a whole bunch of people. <laughs> no, no. Okay. I think it's all interesting um, stuff. The um, uh, my experience has been, and uh, it's the experience I think of the producers of uh, two of the great shows of the of the new golden age of audio drama, Limetown and Homecoming. Right. Uh, is that? Performers who are mostly trained in the theater and haven't worked in film and serious television, uh, but particularly in film, tend to have a theatrical style of performance. They're trained to articulate and project to the back rows of anything from, you know, a 2000 seat auditorium to even a hundred seat one. And so the rhythms they use and the uh, enunciation they use and everything works wonderfully well in the theater when you're removed from them. But when they're whispering in your ear, which is what audio performance really is, um, it becomes very artificial. Right. And it, it undercuts, I think, the identification of the audience with the characters because there's this feeling of fakery about the dialogue. It doesn't feel natural, normal, emotionally grounded. Right. Where if you took that same speech and you put it in the theater, it would do all those things. Um, and so in serious being, being American, a most intimate experience, radio right, drama requires that closeness, right. that sense of being right there as opposed to the projection. Yeah. I mean, there's this old not really a joke, but advice that uh, we used to give, and I'm sure still do, to uh, theater performers who are making the move to film. And that is just say the line. That is, film acting is very much speaking the way you would in normal life mm -hmm. to, you know, there are exceptions by genre, but basically that's what it's all about is you're delivering lines in a conversational tone with only you know, the most minimal kinds of emphasis. Right. Uh, and uh, that's the style of performance that really makes uh, radio drama or audio drama as a podcast sing today. Um, and I think it's not, uh, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that both Homecoming and Limetown got, I don't know, 20 or 30 million downloads when those things launched back in 2015, 16. Sure. Um, but one of the things is that they used this filmic style of performance uh, to make that work. So anyway, that's one of the things that happened as a result of using these uh, uh, film and television actors. Uh, in um, Stranger Station, by the way, we used Richard Thomas, who had just come off, uh, oh, what was that show called? He was John Boy in oh, yeah, yeah. What, yeah. Little, the, little the House of the... The Waltons, that's what the it was. The Waltons, yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, equivalent performer. So anyway, with Red Wind, uh, the this was sort of the major insight that went into Star Wars. Um, the whole 
story takes place during a Santa Ana wind. And these are these horrendous, hot, dry winds that howl through Los Angeles even today. And when Chandler was writing, Houseman told me that, you know, they were really much worse way back when he was writing the story. But anyway, wow. um, the Foley guy we had, knowing that we needed that wind sound effect, found the wind that was used in High Noon. And he wow. brought that on a cassette with him, with his oh, wow. Foley machine. Um, and so we actually used the wind from High Noon to be the Santa Ana wind that ran under it. And there, there are some interior scenes in the story where you can't hear the wind because of wherever it is you're located. Um, wow. So was and I a was, lot of this recorded live? It was like, all you... recorded live. Yeah. Okay, cool. You didn't all of it. It was just like tracks upon tracks old upon golden tracks. age radio drama. Very uh, cool. The performers were in the studio. The Foley guy was with us uh, with his own microphone set up so he could do stuff. We all knew to be quiet. Mm -hmm. And he could do whatever sounds he needed to do. And then things like the wind were on tape. Right. And the engineer would balance it all. We do a quick little. Sure test and then we would do you know a five minute scene or you know however long the the scene was um and well Widmark and the rest of the people couldn't hear all that sound stuff uh we sure. could hear it in the studio um and the thing that struck me was whenever the wind was blowing the show came alive uh that uh when the wind wasn't there then you know, it was still Widmark and Crucian and, you know, all these folks, but it didn't have the same attraction. It didn't have the same grip on me as a producer that uh, it did when the wind was blowing and it, uh, which led to my theory sort of reinforced by later sometime at the BBC that that's one of the critical things about radio drama that locations need to be selected for ambience uh, to help us see what's going on without the performers having to tell us what's going on. Uh, sure. So anyway, that was, so we did that. And then we did Stranger Station, which takes place, you know, in outer space on a space station where it starts snowing inside. And so this Foley guy, so the sound of Richard Thomas walking in a spacesuit through snow is throughout, you know, the show. Uh, and so the snow sound effect is done with a box of uh, cornstarch wrapped with videotape, uh, wrapped with duct tape. And the Foley guy is holding it up to the microphone, you know, squeezing this thing um, yeah. uh, for the feet walking through snow. And the same thing struck me, because we did these shows back to back, that whenever he was walking and talking at the same time, crunch, 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 um, the show came alive, you know, that was the, and when he stopped walking, <laughs> then, you know, there was this kind of this lull. Um, mm. So anyway, that, that led me because I was listening at the same time to some of the earplay productions, which are all available on records. Um, and they didn't do that. Earplay was mostly spoken voice. Uh, with occasional sound effects, no, almost no music. Um, there may have been some exceptions in all of them, but basically uh, it was voices rec recorded in a dry, generally a dry environment. 
there'd be a door closing periodically. Um, normally in a way that sort of didn't sound like a door that was in the same world as the characters. Right. Um, See, and I found kind of the show that was, a lot with the mystery project, almost like drawing room mysteries, you know, yeah, like that we would, right. you know, parlor mysteries or whatever they call them, where they, yeah. you know, sitting around chatting and the odd, you know, mm -hmm. they might put a, a glass down, you know, yeah. as they're is they're drinking or something, but there's not yeah. a lot of yeah depth, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, anyway, that's you know, so I think the the idea that ambience was critical, that it had to be integrated into the story. Um, that um, that audio, and it led me to begin thinking that audio drama was really a form of visual storytelling, that audio drama was much closer to screenwriting than to playwriting. For sure. That it needed many fewer words, uh, that the, all the things that worked really well in the theater didn't translate well to audio. Uh, now, that isn't to say you can't, do especially one-person shows for audio. Uh, and there have been some great things I've seen out of the, back during the pandemic out of the uh, the UK theater. Um, but that's a sort of different world and for a different audience. Uh, but as far as I was concerned, if for a mass audience, you know, to try to get more than a small group of aficionados to come to this forum, um, it had to, the visual, the storytelling needed to be much more visual and was typical in contemporary audio drama back in the 80s um, or the, I mean, the 70s, I guess. Um, and that uh, the ability to see the action is what sound actually allowed you to create. Uh, and so we didn't need all this exposition and all these references to what was everybody was seeing and doing and, uh, yeah. you know, oh, don't hit me with that club. John, what are you doing with that gun? Yeah. As I always right. tell my yeah. students, right? Exactly. You know, so, things can be told anyway, so, for sure. Uh, anyway, that, that's sort of briefly sort of the background. Uh, and then... Um, <clears throat> So, uh, so I'm working with Houseman. Houseman is on campus also filming Paper Chase, the television series. He's oh, playing wow. Professor Kingsford Field, whatever Kingsfield, whatever his name was. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, <clears throat> our offices were across the hall from each other. And one day he walked into my office with a big cardboard box. So he dumps it on my desk. And, and mostly it's because I was the only faculty member in the theater department that had a record player, a stereo record player and speakers and stuff because of this audio work I'd been doing. Sure. And oh, and a little Very bit of background is <laughs> that uh, when we did the Chandler and the Damon Knight, I asked John if he would do the introduction to each piece. Would he write a brief introduction and do it? And he agreed. Uh, wow. to uh, to do that. So uh, he, um, uh, you know, so that that sort of cemented the audio relationship between the two of us, I guess. So anyway, all of that work was done. Uh, NPR aired the stuff periodically, and uh, so did KUSC. So anyway, Hausman comes in with his box one day, and he dumps it on my desk sits down in the one chair I had in my office, uh, other chair, and he says, play those for me. Uh, and you, if you ever saw Paper Chase, uh, 
Um, uh, paper chase was John Houseman being John Houseman. Uh, he was just, you know, imposing, kind of gruff, um, absolutely no patience for fools uh, <laughs> and uh, no sensibility about, you know, being nice about things. You know, I would sit in and help him with auditions for stuff. And some poor performer would work on, walk up on stage uh, and say, hello, I'm Joe Schmo. And he would say, next. <laughs> and he was, you know, wow. next person would come out, whatever. <laughs> so anyway, so I look in the box and it's full of earplay recordings, these 33 RPM albums of earplay radio drama. And so I put the first one on the turntable and I drop the needle on it and it plays for like 10 seconds. And John says, next, take the needle off, put it away, get the next one out. Next. Uh, I think the longest he'd listened to any of them was maybe 20 seconds. Um, and so we went through about, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 of these where he never listened for more than maybe somewhere, depending on the show, it was anywhere between five seconds and about 20 seconds. Um, and so last one, I put them all back in the box. He picks up his box, he walks away. Uh, not a peep about what bail this was all about. So anyway, um, the next thing that happened is, I don't know, within the next few weeks, John comes back and says, um, would you be interested in producing a series for NPR? Um, and uh, <laughs> I said, oh, sure, why, you know. So anyway, it turns out that all of the this box of recordings had been sent to John by Frank Mankiewicz from NPR because right. Mankiewicz had the, this crazy brainstorm that radio drama was the way to draw a new audience for NPR. And he had all these 10 years worth of shows from earplay. Right. Um, and I don't know, there must have been a, at least a hundred of them or something. Uh, and so his idea was, well, maybe this is the series to use. And John obviously disabused him of that fact. Uh, and uh, so uh, and, you know, what's interesting is that, well, I don't think John knew the uh, uh, director or producer of any of these things he was certainly familiar with many of the performers who were in them. You know, there are people he'd worked with in New York, at Juilliard and all kinds of places in American rep and programs like that. So anyway, um, the, uh, so NPR started talking to me about this and, um, you know, I so gave them a few of my ideas and the ground rules were that there had to be 13 episodes um, the idea initially was that it was going to be aired before the news program so that it would draw an audience and then they discover the news on NPR and come back for the news. Um, but it would be 13 episodes, probably half an hour each. Uh, so it would fill a quarter of the year in terms of programming. Right. Um, so this was um, weekly on what day of the week? Uh, you know, I don't remember. Each station got some okay. flexibility in how to uh, air this. Uh, I think NPR originally tried to coordinate it across the country, but basically the only thing that was coordinated was that you couldn't air it before such and such a date. Right. Okay. Um, so um, anyway, 
uh, you know, I made this deal with, got the contract from MTR to produce this thing. And of course, we didn't have a subject. We didn't, you know, we had no clue what we were going to do. Uh, so I, John was in my office about something, I don't know what, and I said, okay, you got me this gig. Um, how do we attract an audience to radio drama in you know, late 1970s, early 1980s. What do we do? How do we do that? Um, and so he thought for a minute and there's this dead silence. And he says in his Professor Kingsford style, create a scandal. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, the uh, that became the watchword for this, whatever this was going to be, create a scandal. Uh, and of course, he was thinking back to War of the Worlds uh, when he and Wells panicked a portion of the East Coast, depending on whose version of the history you read. For sure. Um, so the problem was, you know, then, so what are we going to do for 13 episodes? You know, uh, uh, six and a half hours of audio drama. Um, and so the first idea was um, that, for, uh, you know, and then, oh, the, this had then spun out in that it was going to be a co-production with the BBC. So we okay. get some expertise from the BBC. Um, uh, I think it was NPR's way of trying to ride herd on me to make sure I didn't, you know, do something really dumb. Uh, so, so anyway, did John um, have connections with the with the BBC, or was that higher? Uh, he had connections with Aubrey Singer, who was the okay. president of the BBC. But he was at this point, John was not involved um, uh, in NPR already, and PBS already had connections with BBC. This is the days gotcha. when Aubrey Singer was president of BBC and joking that his. He actually had two jobs. His job was doubly hard because not only was he programming for the BBC, but he was programming for American PBS. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, the uh, so the original idea was, oh, hey, we've done this Chandler thing, which worked really well, and we had a great cast, uh, and we might be able to get Rid Widmark interested in this. Um, and... So then the uh, the so I went back to Chandler's widow and said, well, you know, you were so nice. You gave me the rights for, I don't know, 50 bucks or something to the Red Wind. Uh, would you give us the rights to 12 other stories that Chandler had written? Because the idea was the base on the short stories. Mm -hmm. um, and she instantly said, no, it's too much trouble. Uh, it's <laughs> for, you know, for a nonprofit. Um, right you know, not worth my time. Um, and so looking back when I was talking to somebody else about this years ago, I, I was sort of intrigued by the fact that I didn't push to try to get the rights, that I just sort of accepted her saying no. Right. Um, and the uh, and I think what bothered me through the whole thinking about Chandler uh, was that um, there was no scandal connected to it. You know, it didn't. Sure. It wasn't an obvious, other than the fact that we were going to do a Raymond Chandler thing in 13 episodes. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't anything that sort of seemed outrageous about it. And I had spent some time in London with Richard Imerson, who was the legendary head of radio drama at uh, the BBC. And I pitched the Chandler idea to him. This is before I talked to Chandler's widow. 
Um, and Richard was not wonderfully excited because the BBC had done a version of the Chandler stories with an all British cast trying to pretend to be sound like Americans. Americans. Uh, and so I, I pushed a little more than I did with Helen uh, Chandler. And um, uh, and eventually Imason said, well, you know, maybe it would be interesting to do a real American version of this instead of what we did. But he clearly wasn't excited about it. Uh, right. And since they were going to be putting in a chunk of money into this thing, uh, you know, that's sort of where it's at. Sure. Um, and so anyway, the Chandler thing fell apart. We're back to the drawing board again with no idea what to do. And one day this young grad student, a uh, former grad student came into my office uh, and to tell me about what he was up to in the film biz. And, you know, he was the son of son and grandson of longtime Hollywood directors and stuff like that, a kid named Joe Rosenzweig. And so I was telling him my story of woe that, you know, we had this money, we had everything we needed, but we didn't have a project. We didn't have a story. Um, and he said, well, why don't you do Star Wars? Uh, and Star Wars had just come out about, I don't know, eight, nine months beforehand had become, you know, it was the most visual film Hollywood had ever made uh, in terms of mainstream studio films. And it instantly clicked. This was going to be the scandal that we were wow. going to make a radio drama of the most visual film that had ever been made in Hollywood. <laughs> and, and people, people really can't conceive nowadays who didn't grow up like mm -hmm. like I was, yeah. I was eleven when Star Wars came out, mm -hmm. and people can't conceive of how much of a of a massive explosion this was, and how many different special effect special effects coming out of it. A company came out of it a an audio company mm -hmm. came out of it like it just re revolutionized so many different ways of, of doing story and the whole bit so yeah i can see how that would have been a great scandal <laughs> yeah and you know i still remember sitting in the theater to see star wars the first time you know before any of this thing came up with npr and all that and the opening crawl comes out and it disappears into the background uh and i thought oh my god this is going to be amazing and i, you know, I don't even care what the story is now i think that opening crawl was all i need for my however much i paid for a ticket um so anyway that's how and you know frank mankowitz thought it was a great idea. He needed no convincing. Uh, we, Frank, flew out to Los Angeles and Houseman and I met him in a deli uh, and talked about this idea. And um, uh, he was sold on it. NPR, however, <laughs> thought that they had just gotten in bed with the devil, that, uh, you know, <laughs> that uh, to do this hugely popular film on snooty NPR was, you know, they just couldn't wrap their brain around that. Uh, but Frank was, you know, not somebody who would easily change his mind uh, as president of NPR. And the word just came down that this is what we're doing and Toscan's producing it, and um, uh, and that's the deal. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> um, and and so, what a yeah. cast you ended up getting, too. 
Yeah, and we almost got Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher as well. Uh, you wow. know, we got Tony Daniels and Mark. Uh, yeah. And but uh, the the and Perry King was a good was a good uh, choice. Oh yeah, uh, he he, he had actually auditioned. He'd auditioned for the role and lost out to Harrison for which. Uh, which is funny. I I know the story, mm-hmm. but I always say. <laughs> Theoretically, though, he's played he's played Han Solo longer than Harrison Ford yes, has. Exactly. If you add all the hours together that yeah, he's done. You know, Harrison so, only got, yeah. I don't know, uh <laughs> two hours and five minutes or something That's like right. that. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So but, yeah, I, I didn't mean to jump ahead. That's uh the, the wrinkle in all of this was um that the deal with NPR and the BBC uh that I wasn't, I mean, I knew about, but wasn't savvy enough in my tender years um, was that the BBC would provide the writer uh, and we would do all the production work in the US. Um, And so um, the the writer was hired based on Imerson saying, here's the guy you need to hire. NPR agreed to a contract where uh, the guy uh, would get his full salary if he wrote seven of the 13 episodes. Once he wrote that seventh episode and sent it in, he got paid for the whole 13. Um, That's Brian Daly we're talking about. No, no, no. This is before Brian. No, this is a BBC guy whose name, fortunately, I have forgotten because if he's still alive, he'd probably sue us. Anyway, um, uh, (laughs) so... Here I am, I'm sitting in LA waiting for, thinking I'm going to get episode one so I can read this thing, take it to Lucasfilm uh, and to Carol Teitelman, who is their point person on this thing, uh, to see whether we really had a workable script or not. So, you know, weeks go by, months go by, there are no scripts. And little did I know that this clown was writing all seven episodes of the first seven episodes at once in order to earn his money in case he got dumped. Um, So finally, this bundle of seven scripts arrives in my mailbox. uh, And I read the first one. And I think, well, you know, it's a well-written radio script, but it sure ain't Star Wars. You know, it's Dune and it's Tolkien. And those were really important influences on Star Wars, but that wasn't the world of George Lucas's Star Wars. Um, So I read all seven. Lucasfilm and Lucas in on this before you even got to that point. Who contacted? No, no. no, you didn't. You were going to just take the scripts to them, and then well, well, we got the uh, you know basically we already had an agreement with them to do it once we. Uh, and, you know, all of that came out of the fact that Lucas was part of the USC film mafia, um, okay. you know, and I was teaching there. KUSC was the radio station there. Mm-hmm. Um, Houseman was on the uh, faculty there. Uh, was George that graduated old alma, from alma mater as well. Yeah. What's George's it? old George's old university yeah. as well. He, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. See, George and almost everybody he hired into his operation at what eventually became Lucasfilm were USC alums, his business manager and, you know, bunches of other people. Um, And so anyway, we were eventually able to make a deal with them. Uh, This is before we even started on the scripts issue. Um, And uh, so he gave us the rights for to Star Wars for a dollar a year, I think was the the deal uh, as a way of uh, making a donation to 
USC, sort of, sure. you know, even though USC wasn't going to get any money out of it. Right. Uh, and then uh, we were, um, uh, so uh, in the, the meantime, the, the next question was, who was going to actually be the director and the producer of this? And the when I looked around the country and at who was in Los Angeles and all of that, um, I, for better or worse, decided that the guys I really needed to go with were the same guys who did earplay, which meant that I was going to have uh, uh, I was going to have to work really carefully in terms of getting the production I wanted out the other end because their experience was at the other end of that scale. Right. Uh, but it seemed like, for a variety of reasons, it seemed like the only sensible thing to do um, with a, a something of this scale and involving Lucasfilm and all of that. Um, <clears throat> so um, and. Uh, so even though, you know, these guys weren't well known at the time, it was going to be some time before John Madden, the director, went off and won an Academy Award for Shakespeare in Love and all that stuff. One so, of my all-time favorite uh, movies. Yeah. So anyway, um, so the thing we were set up with Lucasfilm, uh, Lucas, and this is something I didn't realize until about nine months ago, uh, Lucas viewed this project as the equivalent of a spin-off, similar to the novelizations and comic books and, you know, all that stuff. They were Star Wars fan memorabilia and things like that. And so he handed the project to Carol Teitelman, who had started as his secretary, you know, three or four years earlier, I guess, uh, maybe even less than that. And because she was in charge of overseeing all the, the novelizations and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, I got all these seven scripts uh, and they were hopeless. They were, you know, they were fine if you weren't doing Star Wars, if you were doing just these scripts because they were science fiction. Um, so I went out to Carol Teitelman, who and by then we had become pretty friendly and sort of worked well together. And I said, well, here are the first seven scripts. I don't think they work. You need to tell me whether these are salvageable. I don't think they are. Um, and, you know, I mean, normally, you know, I wouldn't have given away my attitude quite so soon, but <laughs> I knew we were sort of under the gun on a timeline. So she read these things. What was the agreed. timeline, if I may ask? Like you had a timeline. Do you have a specific end date? Well, was... I think the, the goal originally was that it would start being broadcast sometime in 1980. So we ended up being almost a year behind that schedule. Right. Uh, maybe not quite, maybe nine months or something like that. So anyway, I then had to fire the writer. Um, and uh, And you could see the smoke from London uh, uh, sailing across the country um, and the smoke out of NPR as well. Nobody was happy about this. And uh, Imason and um, uh, Sam Holt, who was running the show for NPR, uh, decided together that Star Wars just wasn't workable. It couldn't be done. If a BBC writer couldn't do it, nobody could do it. Um, so um, the... You know, that was on, I don't know, let's say that was on a Monday. Right. So uh, like Tuesday morning, I 
I stayed away from the office and sat in at my little desk out in Malibu with my uh, little electric typewriter. And I wrote a pilot script uh, based on the screenplay and the novelization of the film that existed and a couple of other things that were floating around. Um, uh, and it was, you know, uh, a half hour pilot written like a screenplay, though in audio drama, what was then radio drama format. Um, right. Series of short scenes, short dialogue, lots of sound, um, uh, very propulsive in terms of its movement. So I put together a title page with nobody's name on it, and I sent it off to uh, Imason in London, uh, and uh, Holt in Washington, D.C., uh, and said, uh, this is, uh, it's, uh, I want you, just want you to take a look at this before you make a final decision. It's a script by a young writer associated with Lucasfilm. Uh, and <laughs> it wasn't a complete lie in Hollywood terms. I was young. <laughs> I was associated with Lucasfilm by that time. Yes. Uh, and I was a writer, sort of. Uh, and <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, Meanwhile, Imason had scheduled a trip to come to Los Angeles and Holt was coming from DC. And we were going to meet with Lucasfilm and they, you know, the deal was they were going to take Lucasfilm aside and say, thanks for your dollar a year deal, but, you know, we're out of here. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, it's not possible to do it. Uh, wow. So we, um, uh, I met... I'm in Holt, I guess, at their hotel, I think it was. And I can't remember now if it was in the lobby of the hotel uh, or when we were waiting at Lucasfilm. Um, anyway, Imason had not bothered to read the script uh, until he got on the airplane. And he, uh, so we're standing, the three of us are standing there, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, you SOB, <laughs> you know. <Right. laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, typical Brit, but good yeah. Lord, uh, <laughs> you know, you've been sitting there for a week. So anyway, he said, well, you know, I started reading this on the plane and I don't know if it's because I was on the airplane and, you know, we're flying at 700 miles an hour or whatever the hell it is um, and um, 500 miles an hour. Uh, and but I could really feel the difference in this script compared to what the guy I'd suggested write this did. Um, and, you know, maybe it's the American vibe or whatever, but, you know, it's really good script. Um, and nice. Sam Holt is standing there and, you know, who, you know, doesn't know a hell of a lot about any of this, but he's just taking Imason's word for it. And Holt says, oh, well, let's get that writer to do the whole thing. <laughs> so my plan was, that they would like the script, but they wouldn't like it that much. They would just like it enough to say, oh, I see now. I understand. Yeah, this is the direction. You know, yeah. This is the, v yeah. the vibe. So in, this is but the instead, they both fell in love with the bloody thing. Uh, and <laughs> Holt says, maybe you should write it. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I'm, uh, you know, I'm the producer of this thing. I need to have a little more distance from it. Uh, let me work on the writer issue. 
Mm -hmm. And we'll see where we can go. Uh, and so uh, I went back to Carol Teitelman and said, look, don't you have a young screenwriter who's working on some project for George uh, who might be interested in doing this? And uh, I can't remember if she responded right away or I think a couple of days went by and she asked me to come out again. And she said, you know, I think I have somebody who might be workable for this. And she gave me this group of, I don't know, it was either three or four novels by Brian Daly. Right. And said, you know, take these Mom's away, read them, see what you think. And, yeah. yeah see sure. what you think. Um, and I read these. I thought, oh, this guy has a real ear for dialogue. Uh, the, the novels are written in a very filmic style. We should do this. And so, you know, his sole introduction to radio drama, though I think he'd heard some in the past, um, was uh, I gave him a copy of the pilot and I printed out a, you know, I think it was a full episode's worth of, uh, you know, in those days we're all using typewriters. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, of uh, scripts with each, every other line numbered, you know, one through mm -hmm. whatever, uh, which was the US radio format in those days. Um, and the rest is sort of history. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I was the theoretically the story editor of the for the project. Uh, and but it ended up that all I really needed to do was to tighten Brian's dialogue. I would I just would go through and in the early scripts, maybe 20% of the dialogue would end up on the floor. Uh, and by the end, it was probably only about 5% because I was leaving room for sound effects and music and, you know, all that stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, and folks didn't need to say as much as they said, either in a novel or whatever. Um, so anyway, all of that process of getting Brian on board and working out the plotting of the 13 episodes put us months late. What's and Brian so, like? What was Brian like? Now he passed away from cancer, but what was he like as a person? He was, well, he, uh, my memory of him is that he was sort of like you're a real writer, you know, kind of semi, he wasn't really a party animal. He was kind of, uh, you know, kept things to himself um, and, uh, you know, could be very serious about his writing and his projects. Uh, he was a delight to work for, I mean, uh, and work with. I mean, I just... Uh, you know, I couldn't have asked for a simpler and a smoother process uh, in working with him. How quickly so, did he write the scripts? Um, finally got all pretty fast. I think it was a matter of maybe two months, three months, something like that. Wow. It went very quickly. And part of it is that he sort of instantly grasped what was there. And John Madden, uh, I mean, Brian knew the Star Wars universe from end to end much better than I did. Um, and John Madden had a great sense of story structure over multiple episodes. Um, this is like and, the old-fashioned uh, serials, really. Yes, yeah, right, exactly. That's which, which George was. Lucas would have loved because that was another yeah. influence for sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, John worked on the story structure. I worked on the dialogue piece. And so we were sort of a threesome working on this whole thing. Nice. Uh, and then, um, and Carol Tatum and Lucasfilm would just sort of pass off on the scripts. Um, there wasn't, uh, we never really had a, an approval issue 
uh, with any of them because they had a lot of faith in Brian. But through all that writing process, we had Tony Daniels uh, for C-3PO, Mark Hamill reprising Luke, um, uh, Harrison uh, uh, in his famous role, and Carrie Fisher as the princess. Wow. And how, how but, did they just all sign up through Lucasfilm or it was because of, you know, because Lucas was saying, you know, it's a swell idea uh, yeah. and it wasn't going to take a lot of time. They knew that it would only be about two weeks in a studio so right. they could come in and boom, do it and be gone. Right. Um, and, um, you know, because we were no longer doing most of the stuff was not done with, uh, you know, with studio sound effects and all that kind of thing. Right. There was a. Darth Vader was the only exception to that. But um, so anyway, we had a choice. Sorry, what a choice. Brock Peters. I've always loved Brock Peters as an actor. What a great choice to have. You can't have James Earl Jones. (laughs) Right. We tried to get Jones, but he wouldn't do it. And I saw somewhere that he was only paid $7,000 to do Darth Vader. But I don't know if that's right or not. But (laughs) anyway, um, so we had this great cast set. Um, and, uh, but the, we've been delayed now. I don't know whether it was a total, all things considered, maybe somewhere between three and six months and Spielberg at the, about three weeks out from recording, um, moved up the filming schedule for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which Harrison was starring in. Mm. And so Harrison could no longer be part of the project. And that's how, uh, uh so he yeah, was a part of it originally and yeah and right he, uh, what did they what did they do money wise like uh, did they pay them at scale, scale? yeah scale. Was scale it was just whatever after scale was at the gotcha. time uh and their airfare first class airfare uh if you know to get them to la if they weren't already there and uh staying at the chateau marmont and the big <laughs> you know Stars Hotel in those days, for um, sure. Uh, long before Belushi made it famous. Uh, so anyway, um, the so Harrison had to leave to go off and film uh, Raiders, uh, and Carrie wasn't willing to do it with Harrison. And it was only long after that we figured out that uh, she and Harrison had had a long affair during the filming of Star Wars. And, uh, you know, she was really only doing it to reconnect with Harrison, uh, who'd been off doing some other stuff at the end of Star Wars. Um, So anyway, Carrie wouldn't do it. Um, uh, So we ended up, though, with Tony Daniels, who is the the, really the linchpin for it, uh, because he and the Darth Vader character were the two sort of visual elements, characters. For sure who carried the film, and of course, Mark as the hero of the story. Um, so anyway, that's how we, you know, got to that point. <laughs> that's that's incredible. So I am, um, I'm imagining that, and did they, like, did they record all together? You said two weeks, or was this again recorded separately, or did they do this? No, no, as everybody in the line? studio, this was done the way it really needs to be done. This is another wow. one of my hatchets I carry around. Yeah. You know, something happens when you have performers together in a studio. It doesn't happen when you record remotely. And I this remote recording thing, which is driven really by 
uh, ease of logistics and finances, I think, sure. is the death of radio drama or audio drama. But, uh, you know, it lots of people are people doing do it. People do a lot with animation. You know, people will come in and shoot in their, their yeah. things in the studio and take their time to do it. But you can really tell the ones that are in the studio together. Right. You know, yeah. and that, so, even when I do the acting, I, I, I try to do as little as possible. Mm -hmm. But when I do, I prefer even just. Yeah being together so this was all done in a very high-end la studio westlake audio wonderful um and the um even when we did the darth vader stuff he was in a glass booth uh oh, wow. um and so that because we had to alter his voice uh and set it up so that we could alter his voice to make it sound like it was coming out of the aqualung or whatever it was that right. ben burt used um sure. so but all the performers were together and we did it in about 14 days, as I remember, 14 or 15 days with weekends off and a lunch break. And so we would do eight hour days um, and, you know, in boom, boom, boom. And I mean, these were for the most part, these were all pros. Um, sure. Some of the younger American performers were sort of a pain because they you know, they thought it was a party time or whatever. <laughs> uh, and Tony Daniels would get particularly annoyed by the whole thing because he was came from that British acting background. Right. But anyway, the um, so it was all done in the studio. And then all the tracks were then able to be edited back in Minnesota at the studios at Minnesota Public Radio. How many so tracks the, did you record, if I may ask, at a time? Well, this was, I think this was these huge Ampex machines. So I don't know if these were like 12 tracks, some number like that. And, okay. you know, they were these um, tapes that were like, you know, that thick. <laughs> and, uh, so... Um, the, and we had a great technical crew there. So everything went really quickly and uh, really fast. It so, must have been magical being there. Watching it was it was really exciting. It was, you know, I have to say it was uh, really exciting. So the issue, though, still was, OK, this could not sound like earplay when we got out the other end, um, that there needed to be tremendous use of ambience and sound effects and music and, you know, whatever. And so the question was, how to, how could I make sure that that happened? Um, and so um, the, um, uh, a friend of mine out here, acquaintance of mine, who is the concertmaster of uh, the Oregon Symphony for a long time, uh, who is sort of a John Houseman-like character, once told me the concert masters come in two varieties. They're the Machiavellis and the Mad Dogs. Uh, and um, <laughs> my looking back on my career, my long career, uh, I've always been the Machiavelli type. I've never taken to the Mad Dog variety. <laughs> Either one could work. But uh, so um, what uh, uh, when we were negotiating the contracts, knowing what some of the issues might be. Um, I uh, uh, got our attorney uh, in DC um, to arrange for us to get the rights to all the sound effects that were developed by Ben Burt for the original film. Right. Um, and um, so, and then uh, the next issue was the score. Um, and at some point, partway through recording, 
uh, the guy who was going to be doing the engineering, and maybe I misunderstood him, but he sort of let drop that he was going to pull together a small orchestra and re-record all the music uh, rather than the London Symphony version. Wow. So I remember leaving the studio before the recording session was over and I got on the phone and I called Carol Teitelman and I said, you need to tell me that we have to use the entire uh, London Symphony recording of the Star Wars score in the radio right. drums. <laughs> and there's no exception. Um, and she did that. She, I mean, thank God we trusted each other God, enough. Yeah. So the reason for that is I knew that if we use the London Symphony score, then we had to use Ben Burt's sound effects because otherwise the normal studio stuff that was typically used in public radio audio drama couldn't compete with the score. Um, so the, those two things had to work together and that meant it would sound the way I thought it ought to sound for a contemporary audience uh, wow. in terms of its use of ambience and sound effects and uh, dialogue and the whole bit. Um, did you and that's what happened. John Williams, then you had to contact John Williams to get that. Uh, that no, the rights for the music were owned by uh, 20th Century Fox. Then, oh, okay. Uh, so uh, uh, Tom Girardi, the attorney, made a deal with them to get the score for I think it was a dollar an episode per year, maybe or something wow. like that. Um, you know, using the Lucasfilm deal to try to sure. get that as cheaply that's as possible. Fantastic. So anyway, we got the rights. The whole rights package was good for about 10 years. Nice. For the first episode, for the first series, the initial for series. Sure. So um, anyway, the uh, I mean, the one, you know, the last sort of music story is the thing is done, you know, and I take the, the I drive out to Lucasfilm with, I've gotten this tape from Tom who'd been engineering the thing. It's one of these huge Ampex tapes in a big box. And so I'm driving out to uh, uh, over the hills um, uh, into the valley to Lucasfilm, who's then moved into the egg company, so-called, um, <laughs> to play this for Carol Teitelman. And she'd approved all kinds of things over the last year and a half or whatever long it been. Uh, but she'd never heard it all together. Right. Um, and I mean, she'd even approved the narrator, the voice of the narrator. She didn't right. care about any of the other performers, I guess, because she trusted us. But the narrator she wanted to hear. But Ken anyway, Hiller. so Ken Hiller was the name. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. OK. Gotcha. OK. And, you know, I knew and I think Carol knew before I did that somehow the narrator had to compete with that opening visual crawl of the film that For disappears sure. into the horizon. We needed the equivalent of that. So anyway, I go out to Lucasfilm. And the technician comes, we sit in a, in a, one of their small screening rooms that has two of these immense Ampex machines in it that we used then. And so a technician comes in and he puts the tape on and Carol and I are sitting in these very comfy sort of presidential chairs uh, and the guy pushes the button and it starts. Uh, and we don't say a word to each other. We just listen to this thing for, I think, 25 minutes or something like that. And I'm not even sure what episode it was. I don't know if it, I don't think Tom did these in order, as I remember. Um, so the thing is done, is over. And the 
total silence. And Carol turns to me and says, you did it. I didn't think it would work, but it does. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, Um, you know, even at Lucasfilm, they didn't think this thing was going to fly and they were going to let us spend $150,000 or whatever it was we were investing in it Uh, (laughs) with the possibility they would say, well, so sorry, Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, So then the next thing that happened after that is, you know, I tell NPR, yeah, go with it. You're set. Uh, and uh, there, uh, some uh, public radio conference was coming up. Um, and uh, so I called the guy who was organizing the conference and I said, gee, you know, this big series is coming up for NPR. Um, you might want to uh, schedule a, a panel discussion about, you know, the making of this series. It's really different from what's been done before. And he says to me uh, over the phone, why would we want to do that? And I said, well, you know, it's, you know, it's, this is a real experiment. It's, you know, it's different. It's da, da, da. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I thought it was underacted and overproduced. And that was the end of the conversation. Right? Oh, so I'm God. thinking, holy Christ, I mean, is this guy right? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. uh, it was my whole theory so about the radio drama, today. a bunch of garbage, <laughs> and, uh, you know, whatever. Um, so anyway, we uh, we launched the thing at the Griffith Observatory in L.A. We had a press opening wow. there with lasers and, you know, wow. whatever episode it was that I think it was the third episode maybe or that we played for that. Um, and uh, it was really a magical evening. I mean, it's like the Hayden Planetarium in New York and these kinds of things. Sure. And, um, it's, it's, um, and coming out of that, we got this amazing press across the country. I mean, it was incredible. And it was because we were creating a scandal. I mean, that's, you know, it really came home to roost. And, uh, the reason everybody's writing about it is nobody believed it could work. And I think half the articles about it was, you know, unbelievable as it may seem, Star Wars is going to be on the radio. Uh, so anyway, that was the uh, the scheme. And then NPR uh, got this avalanche of response, starting with the first episode. They got something like 50,000 calls and letters and, wow. you know, whatever. Um, and... The upshot of it was that this series, and why I think it had so much impact on uh, so many young people who decided to look into audio as a career, is that it ended up airing for roughly the next decade, for about 10 years. It was still airing in some markets as of 1992. So almost 11 years after it first aired in 1981. and I know because I had just taken a job in Portland and had just moved in carrying tons of boxes and was trying to take a nap and the bloody clock radio went off to the local NBR station and with the Star Wars theme blaring out. Of the video. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. So, oh, wow. What an exciting experience for you. But, but you didn't, first of all, before I, I go to the, the next question, John Madden as a director... I'm curious now, what what are your notes about him as a director for directing the actors? 
Oh, I thought he was terrific. I mean, he was, that's one of the reasons it was such a smooth project. He was, uh, you know, he was a genius at working with the egos of actors uh, and getting a performance without having to take multiple takes. And, you know, that, you know, two or three takes were often enough to get what we needed at the most. Um, and, uh, you know, so the performers really loved him. Uh, there was only one performer who, and I cannot name him or the part, uh, who I felt in our first recording session didn't cut it. Uh, and so I took John aside and I said, you know, this guy isn't going to work. Um, I know somebody who could step in and do it if you're willing to change it. But something has to be done. This isn't, you know, what the way we're headed is not going to fly. Um, sure. So we went back into the studio and, and John, as we were going back in, said, uh, give me 15 or 20 minutes with him. Uh, and so we took a break and everybody was asked to leave the studio except for this guy and John. And he worked with him for that time. And elsewhere, this guy has actually talked about how difficult he found it initially that, you know, he was kind of at sea about the whole idea of radio and he uh, and about the character he was playing and so on. But anyway, when we came back, when we all came back, it was, you know, not what I would have preferred, but it was workable. It was, um, uh, you know, it. Uh, uh, I knew that it would work for audiences, uh, even if it wasn't exactly what I had been looking for. Um, and that was because of John. I mean, he. You know, my approach would have been, thanks, take your money and go home. Uh, I'm going to bring this other guy in. Uh, you know, John said, no, I'll, you know, I know how to work with this. So I'll, I'll make that wow. work. So um, you didn't get involved in the, the sequel in Empire no, Strikes Back? No, um, Why is that? The, uh, by the, once, you know, NPR got this overwhelming response after the first episode or two aired, um, all of a sudden they got bitten by the Hollywood bug. Uh, or Frank did. Um, and there's all this talk about, <clears throat> you know, let's do the next one. Because Empire had just come out. Um, uh, I don't know, three weeks before or something like that. Oh, so, <clears throat> um, the, um, uh, so two things happened. One is um, <clears throat> there was a screening of Empire uh, about this time uh, for uh, members of the Lucasfilm family so-called. And so uh, at the Directors Guild Theater in Hollywood. And so Sharon and I went and uh, lots of the employees of Lucasfilm with their spouses and little kids and whatever came in and filled the theater. And so we watched Empire, of which I have almost no memory, um, mm -hmm. and um, uh, which was telling, I think. Um, and so afterwards, normally, you know, when there's a Directors Guild screening, you know, everybody screams and hollers and stands up and applauds or whatever. The applause after Empire was just polite. I mean, it was nice. It wasn't, it wasn't insulting, but it, you know, it wasn't, you know, grab them by the throat kind of sure. response. Um, and so uh, to get out of the Directors Guild Theater, you walk up the aisle and there's a big lobby that fronts on, I don't know what it was, Santa Monica. I don't know what the street is now. Uh, and you had to turn to the right and walk toward the double doors, the, the multiple doors that get you out of the place. 
And as normally when you leave a theater after a screening at the Director's Guild, there's lots of chatter going on. You know, people talking about the show, other things the director's done, whatever. You know, it's just very lively and whatever. This time, this was dead silence, nearly. Wow. Um, and so everybody's walking out. And ahead of me, there's sort of a space in the crowd. And I don't know, maybe about 20 feet ahead of me is a young guy who's obviously a Lucasfilm employee. And his little boy is walking with him. And his boy is, I'm guessing, seven years old, maybe. Maybe he's eight, something like that, sure. you know short <laughs> and all of a sudden they're not having they're not having a conversation or anything and all of a sudden this little kid turns to his father and in a very loud voice says i liked the first one better mm. and the father says shh uh, <laughs> that's the moment that it dawned on me that npr should not do empire that um it's you know the fan base might love it but uh, Empire was not going to get the kind of press or, um, you know, pre-release excitement that the first wow. one did. Sure. If they were going to do anything, it should be something else. Uh, and I let NPR know that, you know, I, I thought they were headed down the wrong road here. Um, and KUSC as well. Uh, and um, uh, and I, they obviously they didn't believe me, um, and they did Empire, which actually did well. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it attracted a, a fair size audience. It didn't get a lot of press, but it attracted a fair audience. Uh, and then several a of years later, shorter, eleven, yeah, episodes right. It was only ten episodes, I think, or ten uh, instead of thirteen. Uh, yeah. And then they did a six episode version of Return of the Jedi without Mark um, Hamill. Yeah, it right. Like, it was, it, you yeah. know, I don't know, that was, you know, the idea was that was going to pay for releasing all the CD versions, which they ended up doing anyway, uh, I think is why they did it. Um, the, unfortunately, <clears throat> I mean, several years later, the guy who was head of KUSC stopped me uh, on the street and he said, well, you were right about Empire. Um, and I said, well, you know, I tried, but <laughs> um, uh, and um, but what I didn't understand until, you know, only a couple of years ago, uh, because I sort of backed away from what was going on at NPR, um, is that the um, uh, the the real downside of doing Empire for a budget that was once again, around 175,000 or some number like that, wow. uh, is that it basically it caused the downfall of Frank Mankiewicz as president of NPR. Wow. It was the poster child for his overspending at the network, which he did with wild abandon. I mean, I don't want to make everybody think Frank was a, an angel right. in his financial management of the place. Uh, but it really resulted in him being forced to resign. There was a congressional hearings and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And he was forced out of the network, uh, <clears throat> which is really, I think, kind of a shame because he, he really did reinvent radio drama, which is what eventually finding an audience for the news programs got converted after with Star Wars, got converted into, we're going to revolutionize radio drama. Um, 
So that, you know, that was sort of the, the upshot of that. Um, but I think overall, I, I once tried to figure out sort of on the back of an envelope in terms of downloads, the way we think about radio drama today, mm -hmm. um, what this thing got as an audience. And I think over the 10 years that it aired with all the CD releases and so on that happened, um, uh, I think it was probably pushing 30 million downloads by the time wow. that first 13 episode series was over. Um, Incredible. Which is Incredible. kind of uh, amazing. Um, For sure. Uh, the one good thing about the other, uh, doing the other two films uh, is that it resulted in um, uh, Lucasfilm finally being willing to allow Brian Daly to publish the scripts of the uh, radio series. Um, right. I had pitched Carol when, you know, after all the furor about how wonderful it was and all that stuff, um, I pitched her on the idea that it would be really interesting to publish a small book of Brian's scripts along with the pilot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, you know, it was a discussion about writing for audio and that kind of stuff. And it was the only time she ever said no to me in the entire oh. year and a half or two years we worked together. <laughs> she said, you just want to use Lucasfilm to, you know, pitch this idea you've got. <laughs> um, so at the end of the other reason that I didn't want to continue with it is that Carol Teitelman had decided to leave Lucasfilm at the end of the first episode. I mean, not, wow. not because we had finished the radio drama, but she was, uh, I think her husband, who was a music producer, was moving back to be based in New York or something. Right. Uh, so Carol decided to leave Lucasfilm. Gotcha. And one of the people who got points in the first film. So, you know, mm -hmm. there was a reason to retire, I guess, or go oh, on sure. and do something else. Uh, and a number of other people had left. The CFO had been fired partway through the project. Um, and um, so people who had not been with George Lucas before he was famous were now in positions of control. Right. And, and I warned Wally and NPR that they weren't going to have the the story freedom that we had in the first series mm -hmm. for Brian to just, you know, go hog wild with whatever he wanted to do, uh, sure. that these people were going to be afraid of George, mm -hmm. to be blunt about it, um, and were uh, going to be very cautious about what they would approve, and especially any variation from the apparent storylines of what was going to come uh, right. later in the series. So, um, yeah. That was one anyway, of the great things was, about it was the expansive universe aspect of of the original that yeah. started you saw cut down in previous in in subsequent stories. Yeah, versions. I mean, I think the the key was always from the very beginning that we couldn't simply put the film on audio. Mm -hmm. You know, it Absolutely. couldn't just be the screenplay done. You know, for sure, it, it had, had to be. Special. Extra. And since it was going to be 13 half hour episodes instead of two hours and five minutes, it had to be, I think, actually the playing time, you know, after you yeah. get rid of all the junk uh, was about five or five and a half hours, something like that. Wow. So almost three times the length of the film. And so something has to happen <laughs> <For sure. laughs> besides what's in the movie in order to 
Well, Good Rick, I, I, I hope we can talk. So I've, I've had you so long. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about taking it, your energy <laughs> level. You have so okay. many stories and I want to hear what happened next. Yeah. And, and, can I, uh, uh, but I, I'd love to talk to you again sometime if that sure, would be good. Sure, when, when, Glad to and, do it. Glad and, to not, do and not drag you out so much. I appreciate all the time you're spending and thank you so much. It's been hard us getting our schedules right. But if I had one question to ask you to sort of finish this part one or whatever of this, of this thing is, if I could give you a, a chunk of money to make anything right now as an audio drama, which what would you want to make as a series? Oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> what would be the new what would be the new thing to, to get somebody's attention? Um you know, I think the idea of creating a scandal uh probably would have to come back into the picture because the unfortunately the world of audio drama right now, as you have to be, you know, I'm sure you know about is that sure. there are thousands of these things coming online every year. Uh, it's an overwhelming market now, unlike 2015, 16, when Limetown and Homecoming were instantly able to break out. Right. Uh, it's very, because there is such a low barrier to entry, anybody can do stuff and throw it up there. And there's a lot of really lousy stuff out there. Sure. Uh, and people are telling us that because they never finish, you know, huge numbers never finish the first episode. Right. Uh, often they don't stay more than four or five minutes. Um, so the question is, how do you break through without a significant advertising budget? Um, and it may be that that's one of the solutions that, um, rather than just relying on social media and that sort of thing, that you really have to treat it like a Hollywood film release in order to attract an audience. That's the only thing I can think of as a way to break through all of the static out there. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, so as to what the topic ought to be, I don't really know. For a while, True crime was the thing that was seemed to be yes. working, but now there's so many of those. I don't know, um, and um, you know. So, but who knows? I mean, Spotify has just closed down Gimlet, uh, yes. and they're dumping some of their other podcast stuff. There's probably going to be some kind of big shakeup with cool yes. allow uh, really exciting young producers and directors and writers to come back in at this. That's a long-winded answer to say, I have no clue. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rick. For sure. Glad time. to talk to you again. Sometimes. Oh, finally. So I'm so thrilled to tell, talk to Pete yeah. all day. I was skipping around looking forward to this yeah. interview. And thank I mean, you again. just if you're curious, um, there's a book about this whole thing coming out. Um, oh, great. Uh, called... The Winds That Shook the Stars. Uh, and the release date has now been pushed back. It was originally started to be close to the 40th anniversary of the series, and then it got pushed back and back. And now it's going to be released uh, because of the size of pre-orders. They've decided to go back to the design of it again and whatever. Uh, and it now, I think, is set for October. Oh, wow. That's uh, great. And it goes through the whole, it focuses really on Brian. And about half of it focuses on, you know, my involvement in this thing. Uh, but it's really about Brian writing all three of the series and putting them together and all that stuff. Um, cool. And nicely done, I think. Um, 
So anyway, uh, and I've tried to take, you know, what I learned over the years of doing this stuff and listening and have put it into this book of mine called Writing Audio Drama uh, that just came out a few weeks ago, I guess maybe a month ago. Um, well, I'm going to have to get myself a copy now. It's called uh, Writing Audio one. Drama, uh, Making Scripts That Work for Fiction and True Crime Podcasts. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, and it's a short, you know, it's like 100 pages or something like that, or a little more than that, uh, and tries to, it's really designed for people who already know something about writing dramatically and whatever. It's not like a let's start from scratch. Not a one-on-one. Kind of yeah. No, deeper. it's for people who already, you know, they're either coming from film or television or theater or someplace where they've been involved a bit in production or in writing. And it's really geared toward the writer. Wonderful. Well, That's I will fine. get myself a copy and come see you and get signed yeah. someday. Yeah. That Don't get confused lovely. by, there's another one that came out at almost exactly the same time. Really? Called Writing Audio Drama. Same title, same oh. first main title <laughs> by a guy in England. And oh, yes. uh, it's for sale for about eight times as much, I think. Oh, <laughs> Something like that. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>